Welcome back, everybody, to the Kev BK Beloved Podcast. I'm your host, Kev BK Beloved. Thank you to everybody that tuned in the last week episode. Go ahead, like, follow, subscribe, rate, all that fun stuff that helps the algorithm so more people can see this podcast and join in with you on the fun. So, same thing as last week, we're going to go ahead and run the Ask Me Anything segments. If you follow me on any of the platforms, at BK Beloved on literally everything, and you know that these Ask Me Anythings in its full form will only be available on this podcast. And everything else will just be clips and little answers here and there. But if you want it in its full totality, you have to subscribe to the Kev BK Beloved podcast, as well as at the end I'm going to cover the two non-football things I did last week, which is watch Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Martin Scorsese movie. And I'm going to do a quick spoiler-free review of Spider-Man 2 game that came out on PS5. So without further ado, let's get into these questions. Are the Bills out the playoff picture? The Bills conversation is never really a playoffs conversation. It's a Super Bowl conversation. Because when you have a top five quarterback, that's the expectation every single year. Especially for this team that was 13 seconds away from an AFC championship two years ago. But here they are sitting at four and three with losses to the Jets in the game Aaron Rodgers' Achilles popped. The Jaguars in London, who I can guarantee that game will be important later for playoff seating. And to the Patriots, who should be tanking. They've been down double digits in the first half and five out of the six games they have played. For the rest of the schedule, the Bills have the Bengals, the Jets who they've already lost to, the Eagles, the Chiefs, the Cowboys, and the season finale in Miami, which will probably be for the division. It'll be 90 plus degrees in January. So let's be nice and say they split these games 3-3. That puts them at seven and six. So they gotta go three and one in the other four games just to get to 10 wins. With a quarterback that has a tendency to unnecessarily self-destruct from time to time. Tough sell. The argument for them to make the playoffs is their division consists of the Zach Wilson-led Jets, the Dolphins who haven't proven to be able to beat a good team yet, and they have the third toughest remaining schedule for the rest of the year according to Sharp Analytics, and again, the supposed to be tanking New England Patriots. So I know it feels like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. It's because I kind of am. I had my doubts about the Bills before the season starts because of all the bullshit in the offseason, but that was as a Super Bowl contender. I never imagined they could actually miss the playoffs, but it does kind of look likely man i'm not gonna lie who is your mvp but it can't be a quarterback it's really the defensive player of the year race between miles garrett and tj watt i know tyreek hill and christian mccaffrey are the popular answers but they both lost and the defenses have been incredible this year and somebody has to talk about it and if it has to be me then so be it tj watt is being his usual excellent self but he enjoys a luxury that miles garrett has only got this year for the first time in miles garrett's entire career he is not the sole pass rusher on his team and he has a defense defense coordinator and Jim Schwartz who had the bright idea to actually move him across the line of scrimmage like every dominant rusher in the league has been doing for a decade now. TJ Watt came in the door with that. I know the Steelers have a defense coordinator by title, but we all know the actual coordinator is Mike Tomlin, who's one of the greatest coaches ever. Miles Garrett was the most double team player in the league the last three years, somewhere in the area of 30%. He still has 82 career sacks over his career, the most of anyone before they turn 28. This season, their stats are roughly even 7.5 sacks for Miles Garrett, eight for TJ Watt, three forced fumbles for Miles Garrett, two for TJ Watt with three recoveries and a pick. The difference right now is Watt has a touchdown and Garrett doesn't and that touchdown came against the Browns when they played but since this is the NFL and it's a narrative-based award let me tell you how it's gonna go unless one of them significantly pulls away. TJ Watt already won a defensive player of the year. Garrett hasn't yet. 
Garrett makes more quote-unquote wild plays, like he jumped over and blocked the kick. The Browns are on pace to be the better defense, so ultimately, I think Miles Garrett wins the Defensive Player of the Year, which essentially is my non-quarterback MVP. Thanks for the question. Who is the most overrated and underrated coach in football? Kyle Shanahan is the single most overrated coach in all of football. I promise this isn't recency bias. I felt this way for a minute. The repeated late game failures. The Niners are 0-29, down five points going into the fourth quarter under Kyle Shanahan. This doesn't include the 28-3 Super Bowl he lost with the Falcons as offense coordinator or losing against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, up 10 in the fourth quarter. Him admitting to failing Trey Lance. We always talk about Brock Purdy prospering because of the stacked roster around him, right? Well, one team is Kyle coaching because I'm pretty sure it's the same one. Reminder, overrated doesn't mean bad. Of course he's a good head coach, but is he the innovator wonder kid genius we paint him out to be? Hell no. Who's the most underrated coach? Hey bro, what more does Nick Sirianni have to do? In his three seasons as head coach of the Eagles, nine and eight, 14 and three. He's currently six to one after losing both his offense and defense coordinator. Oh yeah. And he went to a Super Bowl last year, created the most unstoppable playing football. Why the hell are we calling him a genius? What do y'all think he's doing on the sideline? Before last year, every analyst said, oh, Jalen Hurst has to take a leap. He has to improve. We throw the word QB guru around like beads at Mardi Gras. Jalen Hurts damn near wins MVP last year and Sirianni gets no credit. At all? How does that make sense to y'all? How do the Browns fall out of the playoffs? Deshaun Watson, the same thing we said before the season, and even after Nick Chubb's injury. Deshaun Watson right now has four touchdowns, three picks, and he is averaging 171 yards a game. Right now, he's out with a hurt rotator cuff. I won't bore you with the minute details of the area of his tear and why it's uniquely significant. Just go watch the Colts game. Before he came out, you can clearly see he had no power behind his throws at all. By the time you hear this, there's a chance that Deshaun Watson might be on the IR for all I know. So the question now is, can PJ Walker hold down the fort since apparently they already gave up on the rookie from UCLA for whatever reason? I know PJ's 2-0, but we've seen this story before. He won't be able to be that guy all season long. If I were them, I'm trading for Jacoby Bissett, who had four of their seven wins last year with a lesser version of this Browns defense. That's at least worth three more wins. Guess them to 10, maybe 11 if a couple balls bounce their way. Although if you're Washington, would your starter on pace to take 100 sacks this year? Getting rid of your backup probably isn't the best idea. But with the Browns defense, the only way they don't make the playoffs is their quarterback situation, no matter what option they go with, which you traded multiple first rounders and paid a guarantee 230 M's for a Q QB, it should be a sure thing, but you know how that goes. Thanks for the question. How can you fix the Broncos if possible? To be clear, I think this eventually ends with Sean Payton getting fired and the franchise is going to have to start over again. But in the real world, the man is making almost 20 M's a year and has four years left on that deal. So that day is not today. Let's deal with what's in front of us. Step one, bottom out and hope to get the Caleb Williams or Drake May pick. They have zero incentive to win a single game for the rest of the year. You're not winning a division over the Chiefs and who knows if you can even make the playoffs as a seventh seed. You have to move on from Russ, but nobody in their right mind is trading for that contract. I think he still has like north of 150 million guaranteed money left on that deal. I'm gonna look it up and I'll put it in the video. So you tell him, hey man, either you spend the rest of your contract holding this clipboard and being a coach to the rookie we draft, or you agree to this buyout because running Russell Wilson out there for year three is a no-go. Next, 
fire defense coordinator Vance Joseph. I hate to call for a black man's job, but to take the one positive that the Broncos had last year, which was the defense, and somehow make it worse is a fireable offense. And the fact that he didn't get fired after the 70 point game is way more racial progress than I thought that was even possible in NFL. Then the rest of the plan depends on how much cap space they can manage through the rush deal, because if he stays and eats up the cap, they're really limited as to what they can do in free agency. Should the NFL change the overtime rules? Of course they should. There should be no more ties. You can't tie in most high school football. You can't tie in college. You can't tie in the playoffs. Why do we accept this in a regular season? What are we doing here? This ain't fucking soccer. Don't do college rules because this is the league. You give 99% of these offenses the ball on the 25, they're going to score most of the time. I say we keep playing as many overtimes as possible until somebody wins. If we get to 10 overtimes before somebody can kick a field goal or a safety or something, so be it. But this tie shit has to stop. I do like the other team has a chance to respond if the first team kicks a field goal before the other team gets a chance to get a possession. I hope I hope that makes sense to y'all. I like that a lot. So keep that the same. But just no more ties. These are grown ass men. What are we tying for? Thanks for the question. Thus concludes the NFL Asked Me Anything. Thank you to everybody that sent their question in. If you want to submit your question in so you can hear it get answered every Monday before the Monday Night Football game on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. I will post the post with the Ask Me Anything picture. Submit your question there via comment. You can hear your question right here on this podcast. And it'll be all fun and copacetic. We can do it like that. All right, now that football is out the way, like I told y'all in episode one, this is not only going to be a football podcast. We're going to talk about basketball too. Ha, ha, ha. No, on a serious note, we're going to skip the basketball talk for today. I know as you're hearing this, the opening night was last night. I did do a whole basketball discussion with my brothers at the opening kickoff podcast. You can look them up. Whole discussions right there. Maybe I'll put the link in the bio. I'll definitely put the link in the bio. It'll be a lot easier about that. Just look in the description. The link will be there. So that's why we won't dive into basketball right now. But what I will do is let's talk about the two non-football things I did over the weekend, starting with... Thursday, instead of watching that terrible Jaguars and Saints game, I decided to go watch Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the newest Martin Scorsese movie. Now, I'm going to try to do a non-spoiler review for movies. I'm not the greatest at non-spoilers. Not because I struggle to not spoil things, more so because it's hard to really describe a movie without giving away massive plot points, but this movie is based on something that actually happened in real life, so I think I won't struggle with it as much. So basically, this movie is based off of the Osake murders. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. I'm not ignorant. I just struggle with announcing shit. So basically, it is a systematic genocide slaughter of the Osake people by these group of whites led by Robert De Niro's character and Leonardo DiCaprio's character, where they are taking out this Native American tribe that is generationally wealthy because they discovered oil on their land. And it's kind of this microcosm of the way that Europeans at the time, but eventually American, American whites, ended up taking over the Native Americans' lands and the birth of America in a way. The ending of the movie says it in a very heavy-handed way, but you catch that vibe throughout the entire movie. And I kind of want to approach this from two different ways. One is just like a film, a Martin Scorsese epic in a way and then on the other side of it from like its cultural standpoint so just from a filmmaking standpoint martin scorsese is one of the greatest if not the greatest filmmaker to ever live right so obviously from just purely cinema standpoint this movie is incredibly shot incredibly written incredibly directed incredibly acted all that fun shit martin scorsese movies are formulaic in a way 
How do I put this? It's formulaic, but because he's so excellent, it doesn't feel that way. Like compare Goodfellas and The Wolf on Wall Street. They show the rise. My whole life, I wanted to be a gangster. As to Wolf on Wall Street, I went where any money hungry young 20 something went and I went to Wall Street. And then it gets to the glamorous perks of the life. And then at the end of the movie, it shows the drastic downward spiral. Kinda in the same way you go, aspiration, wealth and opulence, downward spiral. Well, this movie kind of starts with the wealth and aspiration. Like it shows at first the Osake people getting the oil on their land or discovering the oil on their land. And then it kind of shows what that affects happens to their people. But it doesn't really expand from there that much other than the fact that you can see them living comfortably because the story is more so told from Leo DiCaprio's eyes, which more on that later when we get to the cultural relevance part of this, right? And what makes this movie different from other Scorsese movies is all Scorsese movies are long. Like even Wolf on Wall Street is like three hours, 15 minutes long. I love The Irishman. It's damn near four hours long. I love every second of it. The pacing of those movies, because it's so opulent and epic and all that fun shit, you don't feel those hours that much. Killers of the Flower Moon is not that. This is not a Scorsese epic. This There is nothing opulent <laughs> or beautiful or none of that is going on here. This entire story is tragic from the beginning. It's about genocide, so obviously it's tragic. So the pacing hits you in the face. You feel every second of this three and a half hours. Not because it's bad, but because there's no excitement or thrill to distract you from what you are watching. You are going to feel this shit. And I kind of think that's purposeful because like I said, the subject matter of this movie is heavy as shit. So yeah, this is supposed to be weighty and you're supposed to feel every second. And I don't think someone as purposeful and as meticulous as Scorsese will do that by accident. That has to be on purpose. And you could either take it or leave it. I've heard some people critique the movie as, oh, this isn't fun. It feels like homework. It feels like a history lesson, blah, blah, blah. Technically speaking, it is a history lesson. If you didn't know about the Oksake murders, not saying this is an exact one for one as to what happened, go read the book, go Google it, information is free, but it, it is history that you're looking at. And for white people that don't like confronting the fact that your country's built on genocide, yeah, I bet it was uncomfortable to see that, right? Which kind of leads me to the cultural part of this. So I saw an interview uh, from Access Hollywood. I cannot remember the name of the Native American man that they interviewed on the carpet, but his review of the movie was, it was a good movie, however, I wish it was told more through the perspective of Lily Gladstone's character, who is the indigenous woman who is married to Leonardo DiCaprio's character in the movie. Because it's hard to tell a story about the genocide of my people, and it's not told through the eyes of my people. And I felt him on that. I'm Sierra Leonean, and I watched the movie Blood Diamond. The Sierra Leonean Civil War affected me very personally because my grandmother and a lot of my mom's side of the family were living in Sierra Leone at that time. And to them, this wasn't a generations past story to be told. This happened to them in the 90s and early 2000s. This happened. I think Blood Diamond came out in like, what, 06? Something like that. And that story is told through the eyes of a white man who, again, was Leonardo DiCaprio. So I feel him, but, and I'm not going to tell him how to feel on this subject. I'm just going to tell them the conclusion I came to eventually. At the end of the day, this is America. And in order for a message that heavy to be received the way it needs to be, this is going to sound so bad. <laughs> this is going to sound awful. It kind of has to be told through white eyes. I'm sorry. It just does. It, it kind of just does.
was. It's a lot easier to get the message of Native American genocide across when it's a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio as opposed to whoever the most famous Native American actor is. I'm sorry, it just is. Is it a race thing? Much like everything in life? Yeah, to a certain extent, but that's kind of the world we live in. I'm not here condoning it, I'm just letting you know the way it goes. So his complaints were very valid, and I completely understand where his anger comes from. I have a lot of family I do not fuck with Blood Diamond for that reason, so I feel him. And I, I again, I can't tell him how to feel. That was my takeaway from it. And a lot of the critics love this movie, for what it is, I mean, Scorsese movies always rate well. As far as would I recommend you see it, if you love long Scorsese epics, if you're a cinephile, you're gonna you're gonna like the movie. It's a, it's a Scorsese thing. Just don't go into it expecting Goodfellas, because it's not that pace, it's not that tone, it is none of that. This is a tragedy in every sense of the word. Clear out four to five hours of your day and get ready to go watch this. Leonardo DiCaprio's performance is really good. I'll get to, there's one complaint I have about it I'll get to in a second. Lily Gladstone is the star of the movie. She's the heart of the movie. I know it's not told through her eyes like my man said, but the movie doesn't work unless you relate to her and she's endearing in that way. So love her. Robert De Niro is fucking evil in this movie. Like, more evil than he was in Goodfellas, and that's a very high bar to cross. So, by nature of the fact that you hate him, it shows that he's a great actor. Jesse Plemons good. He was good in anything. He went toe to toe with Leo in a couple of scenes, and he was giving he was giving him some go. He was giving him some hands. Shout out to Jesse Plemons. The one complaint I have about Leo's performance, and it is less to do with this one and more to do with Leo in general. No more stuttering and stammering, Leonardo DiCaprio. No more. No mas. I'm tired of seeing it. Can we stop acting like this isn't one of the most charismatic people to ever live? Can we just stop? Like I get it. You have to act. You have to get people to not see him as Leonardo DiCaprio. Too late. We can't. We can't. It's Leo. So please, no more. To all directors, to Leo himself, to producers, stop giving us stuttering and stambling Leonardo DiCaprio. We're good on that. We've seen it enough. So that's Curls of the Flower Moon. That's my review. All right, last segment of the podcast. This past weekend, Spider-Man 2 dropped on the PS5. I've been waiting for this game for five whole damn years. I literally made a video on this channel when the game dropped saying, do not disturb, don't call me, don't text me, don't ask me where the video at, I'm playing Spider-Man, leave me the hell alone. And that's what I did for 80% of my weekend. I had every intention of sitting in front of my TV, holding my Spider-Man controller, which I was gonna use as a prop in this video, but some of you are listening via podcast and it's on the other side of the room, so I don't feel like getting it and doing nothing but playing this game. But halfway through, I say, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't finish the game you've been waiting five years for in two days. Maybe that's not the best course of action. So I'm about 50, 60% through right now. Uh, because there's a no spoilers, I can't tell you exactly where I am in the story, but I'm halfway through the story, let's say that. There's a balance in sequel games that I feel like a lot of games fuck up. There's a balance between improving on things from last game and innovating so the game feels new and not fucking up the things we liked in the first place. And I feel like Spider-Man 2 does it beautifully. From the opening mission, from the opening tutorial mission, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a better opening tutorial mission in my entire life. This, this is not hyperbole. Opening tutorial mission is essentially a boss battle that you just open the game with. Like a God of War level boss battle that just starts the game. And most of the missions are kind of like that. Like they just feel so elevated from that point on. The combat 
feels similar enough to the first game to where you're not going to feel lost and out of pace, but they picked up enough things from Miles Morales's game that even when you're using Peter's character, you still can feel that kind of more fast-paced, rhythmic type of thing, right? They added new abilities you could do with your character. The skill trees are a little different. Everybody loved the swinging from Spider-Man PS4. That's literally what made the game is how good the swinging is. The swinging's still great. They added a little bit of different mechanics so when you're just regularly swinging how you go the swinging looks a little different they also added a couple different moves you could do when you're swinging to make the swinging a little more improved the story from spider-man ps4 i can argue is the best spider-man movie that's ever been made granted it's 10 hours compared to other spider-man stories which are like two to three so it's not really a fair comparison but from a story perspective it's the best one we've got so far again i'm only halfway through two i kind of think so far it exceeds one just because the added layers of Miles journey, Harry's journey, which not a spoiler that Harry's in the game. He was literally the end credit scene of game one. He's in all the trailer promos and the journey that Harry's going through as well really adds the layer to it. The villains and their motivations add an additional layer to it. Like everything about this from last game is improved. I'm not saying this game is perfect by any means. I'm gonna get to the nitpicks in a second, but to start with the positives, it's, it's just the main point of a superhero game is what you want to be able to feel like said hero when you are playing the game. That's what makes or breaks the game. This game wants to kick it up a notch by not only making you feel like you're one Spider-Man, we're going to make you feel like two different Spider-Men and make those two Spider-Men feel different from each other. And they did three out of three. And there's another variation of one of the Spider-Men that they also have to make you feel like you're that version and they kill that part too. It's, there's so much that they had to do for game two that they could have fucked up, but they didn't. And it all ended up working out in the end. I'm, I really love what I played so far. Maybe there's something at the end of the game that'll make me take all this back and I'll make a mulligan video be like, fuck this game, it sucks. But as it currently stands, I'm loving everything so far, except for a couple of nitpicks nitpick numero uno slight spoiler but not really everyone's biggest complaint from game one was what say it with me one two three mj missions we got mj missions back they did what they could to make the missions better it's less of a snooping around james bond thing and they made it more of like a last of us style stealth horror movie type of thing so they're better they're shorter so they're a little more bearable but it, it's still mj missions i play spider-man to be spider-man you know what i'm saying like but why are we doing this why are they here some of the side missions do get a little repetitive but this is less of a Spider-Man issue and more of an all open world game issue because all side missions, no matter how you slice it, is some variation of this group of people did X, so you now have to do Y. And after you do Y, it'll now result in you beating up a group of these people. That's pretty much every open world side mission game. That or here's your traverse the environment game so you can learn this new skill. That's pretty much all side missions in all open world games. So I can't really fault Spider-Man that much for that, but it's still a flaw in the game that has to be noted, right? Another one is a lot of people are encountering glitches that will like just, you change the Spider-Man suit and Spider-Man disappears. Knock on wood, I haven't experienced that yet, but I have to note it. I've seen it a lot. A lot of people are going through it. The only glitch I've noticed so far is when you wear one of those Spider-Man cape suits, the cape will like go through the body sometimes, but 
I feel like it's gonna sound like I'm copping out every single one of my critiques of the Spider-Man game. I promise I won't do that with everything. This again, this is more of an issue of every game that comes out in a modern era. There's some type of bug or glitch that for whatever fucking reason they couldn't fix before they put it out because they just have to get these games out at a certain time. So instead of releasing an actually completed game, here we are with the game, bugs and all. That's all the complaints I can think of off the top of my head. As you can tell, I really enjoyed this game. If for whatever reason you have a PS5 and you didn't buy this game yet, buy this game. If you don't own a PS5 and you're wondering if this is the game that will make you buy one, me personally, I say the answer is yes. No, I'm not gonna sit here and force you to go spend 500 plus dollars on a game system and a new game. If you want to do that, and you just needed me to be the extra push, I'm happy to be that. But don't just do it based on my word. If you already thinking about it and you just need one more confirmation, I'm here for you, happy to be that. Matter of fact, nah, fuck that, buy the system. Do it, do it, it's worth it. The game is fucking awesome, do it. <laughs> All right, so thank you so much everybody for listening to another episode of the Cat BK Beloved Podcast. Like, follow, subscribe rate tell your mama tell your friend to tell a friend at bk beloved on all platforms and i hope to catch you all next week with a new podcast and i post a video every single day on all my platforms i got something for you so at bk beloved on anything you tune in there'll be something for you that day i promise